Good morning, Grace. I can't tell you how good it is to see all of you. Somehow or other, me and my family, we have managed to be out of town every last weekend that we've had this kind of new-ish reopening, whatever this is. Uh, and I just have to absorb this for a second, sorry. And if I start, you know, weeping, just, you know, cut the feed. We'll take care of it in post-production. Um, no, it is, it is so good to see uh, my brothers and sisters here and to sing and to proclaim and hear God's word together uh, in this public space. This is great. We can't meet inside, so let's bring it outdoors. I am humbled and grateful to be asked to preach in this psalm series, and um, I'm especially grateful for uh, the, our last two preachers, for uh, Jackson and, uh, and Darren. Uh, Darren, perhaps you didn't realize last, last Sunday that your sermon was going to be the meat in a lamentation sandwich. Um, and, uh, but, but, but God's timing is perfect, right? And uh, I think both, both Jackson and, and Darren, you've tilled the soil well to look at Psalm 10 together. Jackson, you did this by introducing this idea, this, this genre of, of lamentation. It is, a, it is a genre of psalm, and there are so many of them, and we often neglect them. Um, and encouraging us through Psalm 13 that God wants us to bring our griefs and our sorrows and our complaints before him. And there is a godly way to do that. God is pleased because when we petition him, we petition him as Father King. And Darren, you reminded us of the level of righteousness that our Father King requires, the integrity that God demands as we sojourn and dwell with him. And that therefore, we cannot hope in ourselves, but we have to cast all of our hope on Christ. We need to lean into him because he himself is the righteousness of God. So if, if, if you didn't catch any of those uh, messages, you can go back and, and, and listen to them online, and, and, and probably after this one, this is a pretty heavy psalm, but after this one, maybe go back and cycle through again. I think it will be rich. So let's read through Psalm 10 uh, together. Uh, a, a psalm of David, most likely. It's usually continuous with Psalm uh, 9. And it's written as an acrostic, uh, just instruction. That's why it's often linked. But um, regardless of who wrote it, uh, we're going to see the heart of someone who is, as Kenny said, is bringing his why. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. 
As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in a thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call into account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Our Father, so much of this psalm resonates with us right now. In the face of the evil we see in our world and even the evil in our own hearts, I pray that this psalm would give godly voice to our sorrows, to our griefs, Lord. I pray that through this psalm, our hearts would be joined with yours and that we would find comfort and refuge in your kingship. We pray these name, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Quite a heavy psalm. This is a psalm that uh, rather than looking inward, looks outward. Complains to God about the problems out there. In this particular lament, the psalmist appears to be revealing and wrestling with a temptation. And that temptation is to view God in the same way that the godless view God. Let me say that again. This psalmist is wrestling with a temptation, and maybe it's a temptation that you have faced. I know it's one that I have faced. The temptation to view God in the same way that the godless view God. That he's MIA. He's absent. He's hiding himself. He's not getting involved He's more a god of deism, if he's a god at all. 
This psalm has three major movements, and so I want to preview those as, as we walk through it and, and give a summary. But by the way, Mindy Klanzig, that was a home run. I, I could probably trim this to 15 minutes now. You, you, you really did. I mean, that was, that was fantastic. Kids, I hope you were paying attention. Um, and so, so now I got to talk to the grown-ups, but, but thanks, Mindy, because now I, 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 we're all on this. Don't you love the fact that God's word is accessible wherever we are, whatever age we are, whatever phase of life, it's all, we, we, can, we can all relate to this. So the, the, the three major movements here, we're going to hear the psalmist's complaint, number one. We're going to hear the psalmist's petition, Okay. And then we're going to uh, hear, that, that is his request. And then we're going to hear the psalmist's confession, confession of trust, okay? Um, if, if you are a parent with more than one child and those children are sufficiently old to fight and squabble, perhaps you have caught yourself saying those words you swore you would never say, nobody likes a tattletale. If you're like me, perhaps you've even lost your patience with these two little gladiators who have come to you each with their litany of complaints against the other. Well, she pulled my hair. Yeah, but he set my turtle on fire or whatever it was. We don't even have a turtle. What are you talking about? And, and, and we want to be dismissive, right? We want to, in our selfishness, we want to say, can you just solve this on your own? Or can you just, just separate? Go to your own rooms. We share a room, Dad. You made us. Yeah. <laughs> Got to own that. But we often... I think we often make the mistake of assuming that God is so much like us. And I love the fact that we are reminded in these Psalms of Lament, as Jackson pointed out, that we can bring our petitions to God and our complaints to God because he never gets tired of us. And so we need to come to this Psalm with that framework despite its rawness. And there are, some, there are some doozy lines in this. We'll talk about that. So first, the psalmist's complaint starts off with that rhetorical set of questions there. Why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? There's almost an accusation there, right? We're coming very close to accusing God of not doing his job. And then that's followed by a long characterization of the wicked. Let's just whip through it again one more time. The wicked hotly pursue the poor. The wicked boasts in arrogance of the desires of their soul. They don't just do evil in secret. They even brag about it. They're greedy for gain, verse 3. He has a proud face, verse 4. He doesn't seek God, and he always seems to prosper. He always seems to get away with it. Sometimes the wicked go to their graves, never having faced the consequences on earth for their evil. His eye is not on God's judgment because he, God is far removed. He's lofty. He's far off. He's, it's too far above him. Verse 5, he puffs at his foes like, what? What? What are you going to do? 
He has a mouth full of cursing, deceit, oppression. There's mischief and iniquity under his tongue. Even when he speaks kindly, perhaps, he's lying to your face. It's motivated by a desire for iniquity and mischief. He sits in ambush in the villages, in all the local places, verse 8. And he murders the innocent from his hiding place. He lurks like a lion. He seizes the poor by drawing them into his net. In short, the wicked is a predator. The wicked here is a predator, likened to both a beast and a human hunter, both savage and yet frighteningly cunning and calculating. Do we not see our own age in this psalm? Do we not see every age in this psalm? Do we not see last week in this psalm? I just read a story about a man who was imprisoned on rape charges, who was recently released because of COVID, and he took that opportunity to seek out and murder his victim, his accuser. Not much has changed since the writing of Psalm 10. The wicked seem to get away with murder. I feel like at least half of my Facebook feed these days, uh, it consists of posts reporting on, complaining about injustices and the wickedness that we see in our world. Violence in the streets, riots, looting, vandalism, racist attacks and murders, police brutality, brutality against the police, abuses of power, human trafficking and slavery, abuses of pornography, the exploitation of women, children, the poor, And that's just here. What about abroad? We see genocide, political repression, religious persecution, double standards for the wealthy and the powerful. We could go on and on and on because as a culture, I think we do a really good job at spotlighting evil. It's what fuels the 24-hour news cycle, right? If it bleeds, it leads. As one pastor wrote, to, uh, to, to weep, is human, but to lament is Christian. Because as much as we see the evil in this world, the world does not always correctly diagnose the underlying cause, right? As good as we are at spotlighting evil and highlighting it on our Instagram or Facebook feed or, or whatever or in conversation, we are not very good at diagnosing the roots of human wickedness. We'll blame our upbringing. We'll blame our material circumstances. We'll blame privilege. We'll blame lack of privilege. We'll blame our genetic predispositions. We'll blame society and systems at large. And while these things, I don't mean to minimize completely, these things play a role. And we need to be aware of all of these things and, and deal wisely with them. 
But the problem is we too often see the evil as out there. Out there. Not in here. Certainly not in our church. Not in my heart. And that thought might be all the more tempting as we've been sitting in quarantine for the last four months, watching the world burn, it seems, from our screens in the comforts of our own homes. Well, at least I'm not like those greedy looters downtown or those anarchists in Portland. Why do people do the kinds of wicked things they do. This psalm gives us the theological and the psychological diagnosis. Notice how many times the psalmist mentions the direct thoughts of the wicked. The direct thoughts of the wicked. Because the psalmist understood there is a connection between our beliefs about God and our behavior. Our beliefs have consequences. And our beliefs about God have the most significant consequences for our lives and the lives of those around us. Look at the thoughts of the wicked as reported in this psalm. Verse 4, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Wow. I, I, I envision, you know, those, those, those uh, movies or TV shows where you got the people going into the, the, the house and they think it's maybe it's haunted, but they got to investigate a mystery, you know, and they're kind of, it's kind of spooky, right? And they're, and they're, and they're going through, and, and, and what's the mantra they keep saying to themselves? There's no such thing as ghosts. There's no such thing as ghosts. There's no such thing as ghosts. It's like the wicked have to keep telling themselves that. There's no God. No, 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 there's no God curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 3. Verse 6, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. I've got it made. I've got it set. And he also says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 11. And then in verse 13, he even goes to the you. You, God, will not call to account. I don't necessarily think we're dealing with one kind of atheist here. We're simply dealing with one who is literally atheos, without God, living a life removed from God, whether he believes in him or not. Maybe he's telling himself he doesn't believe in God. But he sees that there are consequences to there being a God or not. I wish more people would fess up to this. Marcello Pera is an Italian atheist philosopher. He's a political philosopher and a philosopher of science, and he's also served in the Italian government. And he has written a book called Why We Should Call Ourselves Christians. And in that book, this atheist laments laments the moral, cultural, and political decline of Europe that he has been witnessing for the last several decades. And that book from an atheist is a call to reckon with the fact that our ultimate beliefs about whether there is a God, whether there is an ultimate moral order and standard has consequences. How strange 
that it would take an atheist to sound this wake-up call to society, to try to call us out of our moral relativism, doing what's right in our own eyes. And of course, as believers, that sounds strange since it's double-minded, right? And I think we can do better. Our hope is that there is a God. We believe in the God who is there, and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer wrote. He has spoken. And because of that, the psalmist can bring his petition, and that's the second part of this psalm, his petition, starting in verse 2 and then continuing down verses 12 through 15. Verse 2b, he says, let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. Lord, let their plans backfire. we, We love that, don't we? We love to see an evildoer's plans backfire. That's one of the most satisfying parts of a movie, right? We get that schadenfreude, which is German for, I really am taking delight in their demise. Continuing on, verses 12 through 15, the psalmist then bids God arise, get up, do something, lift up your hand. And then the ultimate request, God, break their arms. When was the last time you got that raw and that real with God? Anybody? Last week, actually, last week. And I, I don't think the psalmist is being sadistic here, okay? This is, this is figurative language. This is metaphorical, okay? God doesn't have an arm. You lift up your hand, God. God doesn't have a literal hand, okay? What he is saying is, God, disarm them. When you disarm, that was a bad pun. When you disarm someone, you, liter- you take away their power to harm to do mischief. That's what he's asking for. And at the same time, he's also asking, Lord, give them a temporary taste of the pain and the suffering they have inflicted on so many. Are we hesitant to pray these kinds of prayers? Are we hesitant to give up that part of our soul to the Lord? He already knows. It's like that song uh, our kids used to listen to, tell it to Jesus. He already knows. (laughs) You might as well be honest. What would it sound like to sing this psalm together as a congregation? That was another weird thought I had while I was preparing. Can you imagine? And when you get to that part of the psalm, you know, just really bring it home, choir. Break their arms. But I think it's helpful to see this because as last week, Brother Darren admonished us through Psalm 15, that we need to love the things that God loves, and we need to hate the things that God hates. We need to stand up and protest the things that are detestable in his sight. And this psalm gives us the opportunity to align our hearts with godly moral outrage. With godly moral outrage. To weep and wail over evil is human but to lament is Christian because the Christian has an ultimate moral authority and king to whom we can bring our complaints with the assurance that he hears us 
and that he will do something about it. And that brings us to number three, the psalmist's confession of trust. Verses 14 and then 16 through 18. God sees. God listens. God strengthens the heart. One thing we can do for one another and why we need to meet, we need to do what Jonathan did for David as, as David was being pursued by Saul and, and harassed unfairly by, by his opposition. It says, Jonathan helped David take hope in God. He strengthened David's heart in the Lord. We need to do that. But God does that for us through his spirit. God has been the helper of the fatherless, and he will call the wicked into account, verse 15. That, that idea of calling the wicked into account. I enlisted the help of a dear brother, Josue Manriquez. Are you here, Josue? Anywhere? Anyway, he, he's multilingual. He knows a, a number of languages, and he helped me with the Hebrew, because I don't read Hebrew. And he said, the word here in the Hebrew for calling to account, it's actually the same verb as in verse 4. And verse 13 and the idea is the wicked don't reckon with God. They don't account for God. It's the word that's translated seeks. And so there's a turnabout here. The wicked don't seek God, but God will seek them. That's the reversal. God will judge between the oppressor and the oppressed. And why? Because God is king forever and ever. What a wonderful contrast to verse 6, where the wicked, in the foolishness of his heart, thinks, I won't be moved. For generation to generation, I won't be moved. So where do we find ourselves in this lament? That's, that's the question I want to leave us with. Where do you find yourself in this lament? Maybe this lament really hits home because you have been or are the victim of another person's wickedness, their savage, calculated wickedness, and you are suffering. This psalm is for you. Our Father King cares for us, and he is in control. Maybe you see yourself as just sort of an onlooker, You've become fatigued. You've become calloused by the constant stream of bad news. I was talking with a friend about this passage on the phone earlier this week. Nate Warren, uh, he and Char used to go to this church. and I was expressing this feeling to him, and he gently rebuked me with this. He says, yes, Eric, but what a privilege to be able to just turn it off. What about those who actually suffer these things daily? They never get to turn it off. Do we walk towards those who suffer? Do we enter into suffering with them and bear with one another as we preached months ago? Maybe you came today and, or you're watching us on the live stream and you actually just feel nailed by this passage. Maybe you realized, I think that Psalm's talking about me. That I'm a kind of human predator. Maybe the Holy Spirit is using this psalm to convict you and bring you to repentance. I praise God for that. There is hope. You can be freed 
from the slavery of sin in your heart. Maybe we all need to look inside our hearts. There's a tendency, I think, in these kinds of passages to automatically assume, well, I'm on the good side. <laughs> I'm with the psalmist on this. I'm righteously indignant. Again, looking at evil as a thing that's out there rather than as a thing that's in my heart. Do I use people for my own selfish gain? Do I, do I use people to boost my social status, my career, even my bank account? Maybe none of us should be so smug as to think we're not part of the problem. Perhaps you're still just sitting in verse 1. You've got anxiety. You're still in the waiting room. You feel like God is far away, apathetic, uncaring. You've gone agnostic. Maybe you've drifted from him. Maybe for the last several months in isolation, you found yourself thinking some of the same thoughts as those who live without God. I'm pretty comfortable here. This time of quarantine, actually, our family's doing well. We're weathering this storm just fine. I, I shall not be moved. I, I can indulge in a bit of some secret vices. You know, we're just pushing pause here. God has forgotten. He will never see it. We need to guard our own hearts. I know I need to guard my heart in this against this kind of spiritual drift. I just read a, a Barna uh, survey that says in the last four months, one out of every three Christians has stopped attending some kind of church altogether. And just this week, we've seen details coming to light surrounding the removal of a prominent president of an evangelical university which illustrates just how easily self-proclaimed and perhaps self-righteous Christians can be undone in this way. So we need to see ourselves, as Darren said, we need to see this as first a mirror and second as a window. We need to see ourselves in our, in our own time in history, in our own church, in our own hearts through this psalm. If we were to have any hope though, we need to see through this psalm as a window to Christ. Because if history has taught us anything, crooked people can't fix crooked people. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As it says in verse 14, we are helpless. We need to see ourselves as poor, oppressed, and helpless because of sin. And Jackson and Darren, thank you guys so much for being faithful to show us how these psalms point us to Christ who alone is our righteousness in a crooked world. So in Psalm 10, we can see it, can't we? We can see it there, the foreshadowing of Messiah who is king forever. The rhetorical question that the psalmist asked in verse 1 were answered when the king of heaven arose not from slumber, but from his throne. He got up. He took on flesh. But then he stooped low to dwell with us, to sojourn with us. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. And by his stripes, we are healed, as it says in Isaiah. 
When Jesus came, God came near. He took up the cause of the oppressed and the fatherless and the helpless, and that's you and me. And because he lives, he will one day come back to make a final end of all of the wickedness when he comes to establish his kingdom. He will call all remaining wickedness to account until he finds none. Don't you love the finality of that? Not one trace of evil will be left when God is finished. Amen. So, we should tremble at God's future judgment. But if we recognize our helplessness and our own sinful hearts and our inability to save ourselves and instead commit ourselves to Christ, we can instead rejoice at what John Piper calls his future grace. The good news, the gospel, is that Christ's sacrifice on the cross, taking the worst punishment and oppression that humanity could dish out, he took it on himself, and that punishment was enough. It was satisfactory. It was credited to our account if we latch onto it in faith. Christ's death alone is sufficient to atone for all of the evils of history, past, present, future, and the evil that is in my heart and in your heart. And so to conclude, I want to send you away with a homework assignment. Read Habakkuk, minor prophet, lamenting the impending doom of Israel as they're about to be taken captive by Babylon. And that great verse in there, it, and it raises the same question. Why do you stand far off, God? And here's what he says in 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. People of God, brothers and sisters of grace, let us continue to unite ourselves in faith, in Christ, in love for one another and for our community. Let's pray. Father, you've heard the cries of our heart. You love us. You listen. And Lord, we, we also cry, how long, O oh Lord? But Lord, we confess our weakness. We confess our lack of faith. Increase our faith, dear Lord. Help us to stand against injustice and oppression. Let us stand with you. And let us be united in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.